Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening and watching. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime. As always, please be sure to check out our episode description. There you will find the links to my TikTok and Instagram, as well as a link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. You can also find my email for any business inquiries. Please feel free to follow, download, like, subscribe, share, all the things, and refer this podcast and this YouTube to a friend. Don't forget, we upload our audio on Tuesdays and our video on Thursdays. Today, we are going to be talking about the brutal murder of Kim Wall, who was a very promising journalist from Sweden. This case is going to be very graphic. I just wanna let you know that in advance. It's very upsetting, shocking, and it's just so tragic. But with that, Let's get right into the case. Kim Elizabeth Frederica Wall was born on March 23rd, 1987 in Trelleborg, Sweden. Her parents' names were Ingrid and Joachim Wall, and she had a brother named Tom. Kim was described as being creative, happy, social, humble, and she was just very passionate about life. Her parents were journalists, so they actually traveled a lot when Kim was young, and she got to see so much of the world from a very young age, and it really just gave her an appreciation for life. Kim attended the London School of Economics and Political Science, and she graduated with a bachelor's degree in international relations. Upon graduating, she attended Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism in New York City, and in 2013, she graduated with two master's degrees one in journalism and one in international affairs. So it's safe to say that Kim definitely followed in her parents' footsteps. She was very inspired by the fact that they were journalists and she saw how much they traveled and loved what they did. She was very bright and she was very smart and she absolutely loved being a freelance journalist. Her journalism took her to so many different corners of the world in order to capture a story, such as Sri Lanka, Uganda, and even North Korea. Kim wasn't afraid to face danger if it meant she was going to get a really good story. And she loved to look for the unconventional stories, the people that created things and faced adversity and did things that were a bit out of the norm and not like what everyday people did. And that is when Kim came across Danish inventor, Peter Madsen. So let's talk about Peter Madsen. He was born in 1971 in Scalescore, Denmark to parents Carl and Annie Madsen. He had a few brothers as well, and Annie, his mother, was actually 36 years younger than Peter's father. So there was a huge age gap between them, almost 40 years. Now, Peter's father wasn't the best man. He was very abusive to the family. He actually worked very closely with the Nazi movement in Germany. So it's safe to say he definitely was not a great guy. His morals were very messed up considering what he did for a living. Eventually, Annie and Carl ended up separating and Annie left the home. Peter stayed with his father, Carl, and he actually never spoke to his mother again after she left, which was very interesting and quite odd. He wasn't very fond of his mother at all. He felt like she was, in his own words, dumb, stupid. He just didn't like her. And it's said that this relationship, this very strained or lack thereof relationship with his mother contributed to his hatred for women, which definitely played out in his life as time went on, giving the events that are going to unfold in this case. Peter was described as being eccentric, intriguing, narcissistic, manipulative, and uncooperative. He was very hard to work with. Eventually, Peter did get married and his first wife has chosen to remain anonymous. They were said to have an open marriage because Peter had some very interesting sexual desires, which we are going to get into because 
It's pretty crazy. At some point, Peter became very interested in rockets and rocket fuel, so much so that he wanted to do what he could to make Denmark a rocket producing nation. So he was always trying to build rockets and see if they could possibly be something that could be implemented in the country's blueprint. He launched his first rocket in 1986. And after this, he became known as Rocket Madsen. In 2008, he co-founded the company Copenhagen Suborbitals, which was an amateur crowdfunded human space program. But as time went on, Copenhagen Suborbitals got so big that Peter felt like he was being overshadowed by other people that started to join the company. He didn't like that he wasn't number one in everybody's eyes anymore because he was the co-founder. He was Rocket Madsen, the scientist who was so smart and had a lot to do with the company's founding as well as its success. So when it got bigger and bigger, he felt like he wasn't being seen as the creator anymore. And he felt like he was being ignored. Because of this, he became even harder to work with. And he was uncooperative. He started so much drama, according to the people that worked with him, and they just couldn't take it anymore. So in 2014, Peter Madsen was forced to resign from the company that he co-founded. And it was this event in his life, according to the people who knew him, that changed him forever. Eventually, Peter founded the Rocket Madsen Laboratory, or RML, where he continued to focus on building rockets. He really created this company to continue his work in making rockets, but also because he really just wanted to be the boss again. It was after Peter created the Rocket Madsen Laboratory that he became much more popular in Copenhagen. And he was almost like a celebrity within the area. And this is when Kim heard about him. She thought he was very unique and very interesting. The fact that he was building rockets, she thought that was just so intriguing. And she really wanted to do a story on him. In 2017, Kim was living in Copenhagen as well in Denmark. She was actually living with her boyfriend, Ole. They were said to be moving to Beijing, China for a job opportunity, and they were going to have a going away party in order to say goodbye to their friends and their family. Now, Kim actually lived within walking distance of Peter Madsen's workshop, so she knew who he was fairly well. At the time, Peter actually wasn't focusing on building rockets. He was actually building his third homemade submarine. Now, Kim wasn't into the submarine making, but she still was interested in Peter and hearing about his story and what drove him to continue doing these very unique projects. So she still wanted to interview him. His third submarine was named the UC-3 Nautilus. Like I said, even though Kim was more interested in the rocket building as opposed to the submarine building, she still wanted to get to know Peter and interview him because she had been trying to get an interview with him for months. The afternoon of August 10th, 2017, Kim and her boyfriend Olay were getting ready for their going away party. When Kim suddenly got a text from Peter Madsen asking if she wanted to come aboard his submarine and interview him. Now, of course, Kim is overjoyed because she's been trying to get an interview with him for months. So she decides that she's going to skip her going away party to interview Peter and that she'll be back within a few hours just in time to make the end of her party. So Kim goes over to Peter's workshop. She walks over there and she's kind of talking with him, meeting up with him before the actual interview so they can secure a plan and a time. And then she goes back home to her boyfriend Olay and lets him know the plan. Kim says, I'll be gone for a few hours. I'll be back in time to make it by the end of the party. Now, Peter had actually invited other female journalists on board the submarine before he asked Kim, but Kim was the first person to say 
yes. So she was the one who secured the interview with him. At 7 p.m., Kim and Peter board the UC3 Nautilus and they prepare to set sail underwater. There's actually pictures of them sailing away and they're so eerie because these are the last known images of Kim Wall alive. And they're with the person who ended up hurting her and she's going in the submarine, not realizing that she's sealing her fate. At 8.30 p.m., Kim texts Ole to let him know that she's okay. She said, I'm still alive, by the way. The submarine's going into the water now. I love you. She was telling Ole that Peter had brought her cookies and coffee on the submarine for them to just eat while she interviewed him. Kim seemed so excited that she was finally getting this groundbreaking interview with a local celebrity. She seemed very optimistic about what was happening, but little did they know that this was the last time they would ever speak. As I said, Kim was only supposed to be gone for a few hours and Peter never dove too far away from the shore with his submarine. But by 10 p.m., Kim still hadn't gotten a hold of Olay and she wasn't back yet. So he got a little bit confused. He was like, okay, that's kind of weird, but you know, maybe she's just running late, that's fine. But by midnight, Kim had still not returned home. And at this point, her boyfriend was starting to get very concerned. Now around midnight, Peter's submarine was actually spotted on the northwest end of the Orisund Bridge. And the Orisund Bridge actually links Denmark and Sweden to one another. But unfortunately, they weren't able to get in contact with the submarine because it didn't have satellite tracking. Around 2.30 a.m., Olay knows that there is something very, very wrong. So he decides to contact the Coast Guard and let them know that Kim, as well as Peter Madsen, went out on his submarine and never returned. Immediately, the Coast Guard jumps into action. They alert all the authorities, the Swedish and the Danish police, and they begin searching for Peter's submarine that had not been spotted since midnight. But as I said, they weren't able to get in contact with it. So as of now, the submarine is still missing. Around 10.30 a.m., Peter's submarine, the UC-3 Nautilus, is spotted again by a nearby lighthouse on the southern end of the Orison Bridge in Coo Bay. Finally, Peter was actually able to contact people from above using his radio on the submarine. And he immediately lets everybody know that everyone on board is fine. So the Coast Guard, as well as the Danish police, they really have a sigh of relief. They're like, oh, thank God. You know, they just got lost for a little bit, but everybody's fine. So everybody felt a lot more hopeful about what was going on. Eventually, a rescue chopper came to the area where Peter's submarine was, and they found him standing on top of the submarine. They radio over, they say, he's been spotted, we see him, he's okay, thank goodness. And they just assume that Kim is inside the submarine because Peter said that everybody on board was fine. But all of a sudden, another radio message comes over the chopper saying that the submarine is now sinking. And everyone thought that was a bit odd because Everything was just fine. Peter never gave any indication that something was going on or that the submarine was about to sink. He just said, everybody's fine. So when they hear that the submarine is now sinking, it was definitely a very quick turn of events that no one expected. Now, according to those who actually saw the submarine sink, it looked like it was just doing a regular dive into the water. It didn't look like it was actually sinking or that something was wrong. It just looked like it was going into the water like normal. So this definitely struck people as odd. As the submarine is diving into the water, Peter is still standing on top of it. As it goes down, he jumps out of the water and gets into a nearby fisherman's boat that has about four men in it. And they do rescue him and they take him to a port called Dragger. At the port, 
Police and media are swarming Peter, trying to figure out what happened, if he's okay, how did the submarine sink? And Peter says there was an issue with the valve and it malfunctioned, causing the submarine to sink. But there's just still one problem. Where is Kim? The submarine is now sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Why was she not aboard? Didn't make any sense. Peter tells a reporter that he actually dropped Kim off the night before at the Halvendet restaurant. So police actually go to the owner of the restaurant and they secure surveillance footage from the night before. But Kim was nowhere near the restaurant. She wasn't seen on surveillance footage at all. So where is she? People who knew Peter said that his behavior was getting very odd around this time. He didn't seem very upset about the fact that his submarine had sank and was now gone. I mean, he spent so much time working on it. It was his life. His projects were always his life. And now it's just gone. And he really didn't seem to care. He also didn't seem that concerned that Kim was gone. Not to mention the fact that he lied about what happened to her. So we still have no idea where she is. He just seemed very unconcerned. He just wanted to get out of there. He wanted to go home. But the police were kind of like, mm, we're not gonna let you go yet because we don't know where Kim is. And they could tell he was just trying to get the hell out of there. Peter also seemed to be very stressed and very tired. He just seemed kind of run down and exhausted, almost as if he was holding on to a very heavy secret that he just couldn't tell anybody. According to one of the men that was in the boat when Peter was rescued, he said that he actually had to go back to his submarine really quick and fix something before returning to the boat and going to the port. But what do you need to fix on a sinking submarine? Now this has not been proven that this was actually said, but don't really know why this guy on a random fisherman's boat would lie about it. I mean, what would he have to gain from that? He's not connected to the case. So obviously there has to be a huge investigation launched regarding this case because now we have a missing young woman who vanished on a submarine and no one knows what happened to her. The Danish police decide to call in Lieutenant Commander Diddy Dyeborg of the Danish Navy and they asked them if they could help investigate the case and they agreed. After investigating a little bit further, Lieutenant Dyerberg was definitely suspicious about what happened to Kim. For one thing, they noticed that it was very odd the way Peter's submarine sank. I mean, it really did seem like it just dove into the ground. And they were like, there's no way that it sank like that. Peter definitely could have saved the submarine, but he chose not to. The Swedish as well as the Danish police started to believe that Kim was still on the submarine and never came back up with Peter, was never dropped off, and that she was not okay. On August 11th, the same day Peter was found and returned on land, investigators decided to go underwater to search for the submarine to see if they could find any sign of Kim. And they ended up finding it on the ocean floor, but they really couldn't get inside because of the way the submarine was positioned on the ground. So they used cameras in order to search inside and see what they could find. And they confirmed that there were no survivors on board. Eventually, they pulled the submarine out of the water and they drained it of about 9,000 gallons of water. Lieutenant Diddy Diabor decided to go inside the submarine after it had come to the surface to look around to see what they could find. One thing that they noticed was the fact that the hatch door of the submarine was actually left open, almost as if Peter wanted to make sure water got inside to wash away any evidence. Once Lieutenant Diabork went inside, they noticed that everything inside just looked an absolute mess. It was very washed out. There was a bunch of water everywhere and everything just looked like it had a lot of damage. They also noticed the smell, the overwhelming smell of blood. It was very metallic, very strong, and there was a lot of it. They also noticed what looked like a piece of flesh 
found on the boat. And probably the most eerie piece of evidence of all, Kim's jacket was still on board. Why would Kim leave her jacket if she was supposedly dropped off or if she was okay? While the search was going on, Peter Madsen was arrested around 5.45 p.m. on preliminary manslaughter charges. And what this means is that there's going to be a hearing to determine if there's enough evidence to officially charge Peter with manslaughter. The next day on August 12th, there was a pretrial hearing in order to determine whether or not Peter would be charged. And it was at this point that he admitted that Kim did in fact die on board but it was because of a freak accident. According to Peter, the hatch of his submarine fell on her head and killed her. He said that after he saw this happen, he panicked and he immediately dumped her body in the ocean. Now what's interesting about this is the fact that they were not that far from the shore. As I said, Peter never went out too far just in case something went wrong. So for him to just immediately assume Kim was dead and throw her in the water without even trying to come back up to the surface and get her some sort of help was very odd to investigators. He never mentioned actually trying to save her life. You just assumed that she was dead and like I said, instead of trying to get her help, or if you knew she was dead, trying to return her body back to her family, you just threw her overboard. After Peter told the story, the judge ruled that there was definitely enough evidence to charge him with manslaughter. So they did just that. The same day Peter was charged and investigators searched the submarine, they were able to determine that the UC-3 Nautilus submarine was sunk on purpose. And they announced this in a press conference, which definitely made people think that there was a lot more going on to the story and that maybe Kim wasn't okay. On August 16th, Peter's charges were upgraded to causing the death of another person through particularly aggravating circumstances. Once again, Peter was still behaving very oddly. He wasn't giving a lot of information to police and he was being very evasive. And this definitely made them suspicious of what really happened to Kim. I mean, if you didn't do anything, why aren't you giving us the information that we need to figure out what happened? He just kept hiding things. He wasn't being open. He wasn't being honest. And people really thought that there was more to the story. On August 17th, Kim Wall's family released a public statement. And I'm going to read that for you here. We are experiencing the worst days of our lives. No one can imagine what we are going through. Kim has worked in many dangerous places in her work as a journalist. And there have been many times we've been worried about her. That something could have happened in Copenhagen, just a stone's throw away from her childhood home, is something we never could have imagined. On August 21st, 11 days after Kim initially went missing, police finally decided to release the details regarding the investigation, including the story Peter had told in court about Kim dying on the submarine after the hatch hit her head by accident. This was the first time the public had ever heard that Kim may be dead. This was very shocking for people to hear. I'm assuming by this point her family as well as her boyfriend Olay already knew this information and that police were just revealing it to the public for the first time. But that same day, a press conference was held by police, letting the public know that the torso of a woman had washed up on the shore of Amagar, just miles from where Peter's submarine was found. The torso had pieces of metal strapped to it, as well as wounds that looked like they were inflicted purposely to keep the torso from floating to the surface. There was also a saw that had been found in the same area where the torso was found. And it was said that this saw actually looked very similar to a saw that was owned by Peter Madsen. Now, Peter had actually done an interview or a documentary of some kind that was 
filmed. And this orange saw can be seen in the background of his workshop. I don't think police have been able to determine whether or not the saw was actually his, but that is such a crazy coincidence. I find it hard to believe that it's not. It's not every day that you find a torso and a saw in a body of water, but not only that, it was near where the submarine sank and this saw or a saw very similar appeared in a video of Peter Madsen's workshop. And what are the odds? What are the odds? On August 23rd, DNA positively identified the torso belonging to 30 year old Kim Wall. And it was confirmed that she was now deceased. This was heartbreaking for everyone to hear, but honestly, people knew that once the torso had been found that it was most likely Kim's because it's not every day, like I said, that someone's body part floats up ashore, especially in a place like Denmark that was very safe. This was absolutely devastating for her family to hear as well as Olay. I mean, Kim was just such a bright and amazing person and to know that she was killed in a way of where she wasn't even found in her natural state was just awful. It would be bad enough finding all of her, but to have found her dismembered is just something that I don't think anybody could prepare for. Kim was so dedicated to her work, so much so that she was willing to put herself in potentially dangerous situations. And it's hard and it's sad that her passion for journalism was used against her and she was taken advantage of. Peter knew how much she wanted that interview because she had been trying to get it for months and he knew that if he texted her that she was most likely going to go. And he took advantage of her in a very vulnerable state, isolated with him underwater. Although by this point in the investigation, it hasn't been proven, it's pretty clear what happened here, but we're going to continue to recount the details of the case. A visual was held for Kim at the Columbia University School of Journalism, where she graduated from back in 2013. Her friends and family really spoke to Kim's good nature, her intelligence, her zest for life, and of course, her passion of journalism. Her entire life has been a journey and it has brimmed with a lot of stories. We, who have the benefit of sharing Kim's past for shorter or longer time, know what a fantastic ability she had for telling us about small and big issues alike. No matter if it was about the current situation in foreign policy or the latest trend in vegan cooking, Kim was always in the know and she let us share it with her. Already as a kid, Kim was inventive, persistent and very determined. When she thought that the bedtime stories we read to her was far too short, then she learned to read on her own. Nothing was impossible. Everything should be tested at least once, she believed. For Kim, there were no boundaries. Most people dream to live bravely. Kim demanded it. Kim, apologies for my crudeness, made shit happen for herself. She did not wait for opportunity. She, she created it. It's so heartbreaking that somebody so young and so bright who had their whole life and career ahead of them would have it taken from them so brazenly. To be found the way she was found is just so undeserving of anybody. But for her to have been doing what she loved, doing her job and she died doing it is just something that's just, it's just so unfair and it's so heinous. After Kim's torso was found, Peter was given an additional charge of indecent handling of a corpse. Even though he was still denying that Kim was actually killed by him and dismembered by him. He's still sticking to his story that she died after the hatch accidentally fell on her head. 
Police continued to search for the rest of Kim's body, hoping that they were going to be able to find more to bring home to her family. On September 5th, the pre-trial hearing began, and it was at this trial that Peter finally told the story of how Kim died from the hatch hitting her head. So this story is according to him. I would very much take it with a grain of salt. I know I am, and I just flat out don't believe it at all. According to Peter, he was holding open the hatch of the submarine to let Kim out, but it accidentally slipped from his hand, and it hit her on the head so hard that it killed her instantly. He said he checked for a pulse, but there wasn't one, and that there was nothing a doctor could do. So he decided to hold an impromptu funeral for her and bury her at sea. But that still doesn't explain why she was dismembered. It already doesn't make sense that he put her body in the water in the first place and didn't try to get help for her, but to dismember her, it just made no sense. It also came out during the trial that Peter was very into sexually violent things. So much so that really bled into his real life. He was said to be into very violent pornography specifically. So investigators wanted to search his computer and they also wanted a psychiatric evaluation performed on him, all of which Peter was very against and he did not want to do probably for obvious reasons. But the judge ordered him to comply and he had to undergo an evaluation as well as turn over the contents of his hard drive. And the videos found on his computer were very, very graphic and disturbing. And it definitely made people realize that Peter was very capable of doing something awful to Kim given what he was into. And remember what I said earlier, Peter had contacted other female journalists to come on board with him. And when one would say no, he would just ask the other. And when that one would say no, he would just ask the other. And he kept asking until someone said yes. And that person was Kim. And given what happened to her, it seems like Peter was just trying to find any woman he could to lure onto his submarine alone with the promise of an interview only to kill them. This made the crime that he potentially committed seem like it was premeditated. By October, the rest of Kim's body has yet to be found. So the police decide to hire an oceanographer who could estimate the best areas to search in for the rest of Kim's body. And they used approximation tools given the distance from the submarine, as well as the distance of where her torso was found. And on October 6th, divers found several plastic bags in the ocean and they contained some of Kim's body parts. The body parts included her head, her legs, her clothes, and a knife. According to Kim's autopsy, there was no sign of blunt force trauma on her head or in any part of her body. So this pretty much disproves Peter's story that she was killed after the hatch of the submarine accidentally fell on her head. She also had 14 stab wounds to her groin area. Her lungs also showed signs of asphyxiation, meaning that she was either strangled or cut. As heartbreaking as it is that she was found dismembered, I am very grateful that at least they did find a very important part of her body that was able to disprove what Peter had told police. It pretty much completely invalidated his entire story. Kim's arms were found a few months later, but her and Peter's phones were never found. The rest of her body wasn't found as well. Now that there's no evidence of Kim ever being hit on the head by anything that could have resulted in her death, Peter decides to change his story once again in order to match the new evidence. Now his new story is that he was out on the submarine deck when the air pressure inside the submarine dropped and he tried to get the hatch door open, but for some reason it wouldn't and Kim was still inside. 
the submarine began filling with exhaust fumes. He was trying to get the submarine door open, but it wouldn't. And when he finally did, Kim was already dead from carbon monoxide poisoning. When asked by police why he lied about what really happened to Kim, Peter said that he didn't want to reveal all of the details regarding her death because they were just too graphic. I don't think there's anything more graphic than dismembering someone, which is something that he chose to do for, again, reasons that we don't know. And he still has yet to admit to that. But finally, on October 30th, Peter admitted to dismembering Kim, and he said he did it because that was the only way to get her out of the submarine. But it doesn't really make sense of why he would have put her body parts in plastic bags. Definitely seems like he was trying to do everything he could to hide her body and make it as hard to identify her as possible. On January 16th, Peter Madsen was charged with the prepared and planned killing of Kim Wall, as well as the indecent handling of a corpse and sexual assault. The trial began on March 8th, 2018 in the Copenhagen City Court, and this was a very long-awaited trial. So there was a lot of press surrounding the courthouse. Everybody was waiting to find out what would happen and what more would come out about what happened to Kim Wall. Peter's search history leading up to the days before Kim was killed was revealed in court. It was very graphic information relating to women being dismembered, and it seemed like Peter was trying to find any information in order to do what he did to Kim. Peter was asked once again why he chose to dismember Kim's body, and he said, quote, what do you do when you have a big problem? You cut it up into pieces, which is so eerie and disgusting to say. You should have no justification for what you did. It just shows no remorse. It's almost like he's trying to be smug or clever. It's like he literally doesn't care that he did what he did. Peter also testified using a lot of complicated language regarding submarines because he knew a lot about them and it was easy for him to confuse the court because most people don't know a whole lot about submarines. So he was able to fashion this very interesting story about how the submarine malfunctioned. It was really hard to disprove what he was saying because a lot of people really don't understand much about submarines in the first place. Investigators also revealed that the metal that was found tied around Kim's torso was actually found in Peter's workshop. On March 23rd, women who knew Peter were called to the stand to testify to give information about his very dark sexual desires. And there are a few texts that corroborate just how sexually violent he was. And I'm gonna read some of those for you here. Then the hobby knife comes out and I look at your throat. Where is the artery? You are going to be tied up against the Nautilus, which was the name of his submarine. I'll tie you up and pierce you with a skewer. So everything seems to start out kind of sexually, but then it turns into very, almost like a, it has like a murderous, violent tone to it, which definitely made prosecution suggest that whatever happened to Kim was driven by a sexual motive. Peter was also said to have slept next to Kim's body for hours after he had already killed her, trying to figure out what he was going to do, which once again just shows an extreme lack of remorse or accountability for what he did. Why are you comfortable sleeping right next to the person whose life you just took? He clearly did not care about what he had done. On April 23rd, the results of Peter's psychiatric evaluation were revealed in court, and he was shown to have a severe lack of remorse, empathy, or sense of guilt. Meaning, as I just said, he didn't care what he did. He was also said to be a sexual deviant, he was narcissistic, he was violent, and he had psychopathic tendencies. They also believed, given his psychiatric evaluation, that if he had the opportunity, he would kill again, making him a huge danger to society. 
Prosecution believed that Peter brought on board a screwdriver, the saw that was found near Kim's torso, as well as metal piping onto the submarine with the intent to kill Kim and conceal it. They believed that Peter did this for sexual reasons brought on by his very dark sexual fantasies that seemed to be getting worse and worse as time was going on, which resulted in him doing what he did to Kim. On March 25th, 2018, Peter Madsen was found guilty of the premeditated murder of Kim Wall, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Now in Denmark, life in prison isn't necessarily life in prison. It's usually 16 years with the possibility of parole after 12 years, which is really nothing given what he did. But this is kind of how things were in Denmark. A life sentence just wasn't really a life sentence. At the time, there were only 25 prisoners serving life sentences. So this was very uncommon in this country. Denmark is considered the fourth safest country in the world, so there really wasn't a precedent for things like this, you know, crimes that were so heinous and so horrible. But I definitely feel like there should be more time. I, sh I feel like he should be in jail forever. And to know that he's gonna get out in less than 20 years, given the magnitude of the crime he committed, is very, very scary. Peter was sent to the Hurstedvester prison in Copenhagen, where he will carry out his prison sentence. He tried to appeal his conviction, but of course it was denied. It was very obvious that he was the one who killed Kim and he did it in such a horrible way. And there was no way that they were going to appeal his conviction. In October of 2020, Peter actually ended up escaping from prison using a weapon to fend off prison staff. He was found less than a mile away from the prison, lying in a field of grass with a a bomb strapped to him. Police found him very quickly. They also brought in the bomb squad, but it was determined that this bomb was fake and it was just a ruse in order to keep everybody away from him and make his escape easier. Eventually, Peter was recaptured and brought back into prison. As of today, Peter is still in jail and he actually did get married in jail after his first wife divorced him before the trial began. Again, she's remained completely anonymous and I really don't blame her. Peter actually ended up getting involved with a 17 year old as well while he was in prison. And this prompted a rule in Denmark stating that any prisoner that receives a life sentence cannot begin a new relationship with somebody outside of prison until they've served at least 10 years of their sentence. Kim Wall's family started the Kim Wall Memorial Fund and it was used to donate to the International Women's Media Fund to support female journalists who had the same passion as Kim. They also did this to honor her legacy and I commend her family so much for being able to turn their pain into something positive for people that had the same outlook on life as Kim did. It really, I think, is the best way to honor her memory by supporting people that do what she did and what she was so passionate and dedicated to. We will let her soul and spirit live on and we will do that through Kim Wall Memorial Fund that will help other young journalists to keep up the good work in Kim's spirit that we owe her. I'm gonna link the website to the Kim Wall Memorial Fund below so you can get some information on it and donate yourself. I've mentioned this before in one of my videos, but I really hate how the graphic details of a case can sometimes overshadow the person themselves. Kim was an amazing, strong, bold woman and she had a very accomplished life. She was an amazing journalist. She had three degrees. I mean, she was really an amazing, intelligent woman. It's annoying that you don't hear about more of that because of what happened to her and how she was killed. All you hear about is how she was killed and the person who did it because Peter was so eccentric and 
odd and off the wall. Her life was prolific and it was full of meaning and purpose and she was a very daring person. She doesn't deserve to be defined by somebody like Peter Madsen. She was more than what happened to her. And I think people oftentimes forget that. Now, at the time this occurred, there was a lot of media coverage surrounding it as to be expected, but a lot of people were kind of victim blaming Kim a little bit, saying that she put herself in a vulnerable position with a stranger in order to have what happened to her happen. And I personally feel like that's really disgusting to say in a horrible, horrible way of looking at it. There's nothing that Kim could have done. I mean, she was doing her job. She was doing what she loved and what she was passionate about. And she chased a story that she felt like was worth something. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not her fault that Peter made the decision to take advantage of her and do something so horrible to her. That's not her fault. And for people to try to blame her for that, is insane, it's so inappropriate, it's completely insensitive. And just think about her family. I mean, they shouldn't have to hear that. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening and watching and I hope to see you in the water soon.